So what he says is true. It's worth $200 if it costs that much. I'm telling you, like my life hinges on those types of moments. Think about the moments that God has met me where I've given him a weekend, whether it be a fall retreat in Chi Alpha or Holy Spirit Conference, and he meets me in those spaces in powerful ways. And I don't want you to miss out on this. So if you've been on the fence, go. If it's too much money, talk to Pastor Derek. He will fund it out of Chi Alpha's budget. Just kidding. But... uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding, but if it's too much money, talk to us, but I think we can make it work. Let's be at the Holy Spirit Conference. There's 93 spots left. I want your name to be on one of those spots, all right? So I'm so glad you're here this morning. It's such a blessing to be in the house of the Lord, and I'm excited to be continuing our Jesus Is series. So, so this series is all about the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And, and essentially what we want to do between now and Easter is just look at Jesus, right? Just stare at him and marvel at him and let him stir up our love for him through these seven I am statements. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6. And last week we set up this series by looking at the book of Exodus and God's original I am statement. And, and God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he called him to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Moses felt inadequate for the job. He was an orphan. He was a murderer, a stutterer. He had no sense of identity. He didn't know who he was. And yet God was calling him, of all people, to this mighty task to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and call him to free the Israelites. And when Moses tells God that he has the wrong guy, God responds by telling him that, or that none of his deficiencies matter because he is going to be with him. God is going to be with him. And this wasn't very comforting to Moses, actually, because he didn't really know God at this point. He's like, who exactly is going to be with me? And, and, and to figure that out, he asked God for his name. And in the ancient world, a name told you a lot about who a person was. And God tells Moses that his name is I am. I am who I am. How is that supposed to be helpful? Well, in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And on the surface, this doesn't seem to tell us much. But if you dig deeper, it's full of meaning. It means that God is self-existent. He's not dependent on other people. He is consistent. He's going to continue being who he is. He will not change And we see in Exodus 34, in a later encounter with Moses, God explains that his name means that he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he's relentless to forgive and destroy sin. Okay, so this God, this Yahweh, is matchless. He's beautiful. He's marvelous. This is the God who promised to be with Moses. And throughout Moses' life, Yahweh proved himself over and over again as he sent 10 plagues on Egypt and delivered, them from, or delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh. He split the Red Sea wide open so they could walk through it on dry ground. He fed the Israelites in the wilderness with this thing called manna, which is a type of bread that would fall from heaven. He would give them enough bread each day. He got them to the promised land despite their unfaithfulness. He truly proved himself to be the I am, as I think it sounds better that way. But, but fast forward to John's gospel, and Jesus tells the crowds that he is the I am. And he does this by showing or by giving seven I am statements. So Jesus is saying that he is Yahweh. He is the same God who came to Moses in the burning bush. 
In John 6, we get Jesus' first I am statement. But before we get there, John gives us some important context. He says this in verse four of chapter six. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Okay, so everything that Jesus says and does in this chapter is colored by the fact that it's, it's Passover time in Israel. And Passover is an annual meal and festival that celebrates uh, the Exodus story that we just talked about, being freed from Egypt and, and seeing the Red Sea split open, being fed in the wilderness. After telling us that it's Passover, John gives us a story that you may have heard before. It's told in all four gospels, which tells us that it's very important for understanding Jesus' identity if all four gospel writers would put it in their gospel. Okay, so he's surrounded by a hungry crowd of 5,000 people, but only has five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he multiplies the food and feeds all 5,000 people. And then he has 12 basketfuls left over. And the 12 baskets pointed to the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jesus did this, the crowds would have immediately connected this to the Passover story. As I said in Exodus 16, uh, just after the Israelites were free from Egypt, God fed them with, with food that fell from heaven, the, or the manna which fell from heaven. And the Jews of Jesus' day expected that a king or a Messiah would come to free them from the Romans as they were under Roman occupation. And one of the signs of the king's coming was that bread would fall from heaven again. Okay, so when Jesus did this, they were ready to make him king. It says this in verse 14 and 15. It says, this indeed, the crowd says that, that this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world and perceiving then that they're or that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, so Jesus withdrew because the crowds misunderstood what his purpose was. And they wanted to make him a worldly political king whose purpose was to deal with Rome. But he came to deal with sin, not with Rome primarily, with sin, and he wasn't going to do it with force. He was actually going to do it by laying down his life. Okay, so following this, Jesus sends his disciples to cross the sea without him because he wants to hang out on the mountain for a little bit longer. But then later, he decides, I'm going to catch up with the disciples. He does this by walking on water. Normal, right? Totally cool. When you see a man in the middle of the night walking on water when you're out on sea, and honestly, the Israelites were scared of the sea, Okay, so, so Jesus is walking on the water. They're, they're freaked out. But this miracle is also pulling from the Exodus story. Remember what I told you, Exodus 6, 4, it's Passover time. Or not Exodus, uh, John 6, 4, it's Passover time in Israel. It's pulling from that story again. So, or, so what is Jesus doing as he walks on water? He's saying, I'm the same God who split the Red Sea wide open so he could walk on dry ground, right? He, he, he's walking on the water and, and Jesus uh, jumps in the boat with the disciples and after they get to the other side, uh, the crowds you know, ran around the land to try to get to where they were going. And, and they are like, okay, Jesus, how did you get in the boat? Because we didn't see you get in the boat before. And they say, when did you arrive exactly? And this is how Jesus responds. It's a simple question. When did you get here? And Jesus doesn't seem to like it. It says this in verse 26. It says, truly, truly, I say to you that you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to internal, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, what, 
or they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, uh, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so they're saying, hey, hey, would you mind like, making it fall from heaven again? That'd be kind of cool. And then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. It sounds pretty tasty. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They're like, that doesn't sound quite as tasty. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so the sermon title this morning, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, is the bread of life. Let's go ahead and pray over this and we'll dive in. So Lord, thank you so much for this morning and how you're moving in this church and in the lives of each person here. And God, I pray that you would speak through this word this morning, that this would not be my own ideas, but that, that your Holy Spirit would speak. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we have a reoccurring event in our household. It happens every night at dinner time. Our oldest son, Abram, eats most of his food, but he leaves a couple bites on his plate. He always has to leave a couple left over. And then he walks away to go play. You know, he's got better things to do. He needs to go play. Then our youngest son, Caleb, who sits on the opposite side of the table in a high chair, sees that Abram has left to go play, and, he's, and he starts whining. You know, he wants out. He wants to go play with Abram, too. Okay, so we let him out, and, and, and then Caleb waddles over towards Abram. He walks like this. And then he sees Abram's bites left on his plate, and he's like, that actually looks pretty good. He gets up, gets in the chair, climbs up there, and starts eating Abram's food. And there's a couple reasons for this. One, he's a hungry kid. That boy is huge. He's in the 99th percentile. He's a big boy. He needs lots of food to be filled up. But even more than this, Caleb has what you might call a scarcity mindset. He's always worried that he won't get enough. If Emily or I are playing with another child, he starts whining and wants us to play with him. He wants to make sure that he gets enough of our attention. If Abram is playing with one of his car, all of a sudden, Caleb does not care about his cars and, and they're not good enough anymore, but he has to go take Abram's cars. If Abram has his own milk, he has to go take Abram's milk. I don't want my milk anymore. I want what Abram has. He wants to make sure that he can enjoy everything. If me and Emily are drinking something different than him, like a Mountain Dew, it's my guilty pleasure once in a while, okay? Uh, he'll be like, hey, I, I need that. I, I need your drink, Dad. I could go on. Caleb is always worried that he's missing out on something. He's worried that there's not enough to go around for him. I think it has a lot to do with being a middle child, okay? Having kids between the ages of six months and five years old, and he's the middle, that would be tough. And I think we can all relate with Caleb a little bit, okay? We're concerned that God will forget about us or that he'll fail to come through on our behalf and provide for us or that life will pass us by and, and we'll miss out on something. And this can express itself in so many different ways, okay? So maybe for you, you have an adult child who doesn't have their life together yet or maybe they, they don't love Jesus and, and you stay up late into the night worried about their future. You kind of play all these scenarios in your head. You're worried that God won't come through in their lives. Or maybe there's a promotion at work that you want, but you're worried that your coworker's gonna get it. And you're worried that, that you're just gonna keep missing out on opportunities. Or you have an investment that has not been going in the right direction and you're concerned about the future of your finances. 
or you've gotten an unfortunate medical diagnosis. You've seen other people healed. You've seen other people restored, but you're just not sure if that will be your story. You're not sure if God has that for you. Because we live in a fallen world, we have so many reasons to worry and feel that we're missing something. There's this sense that that we're gonna miss out on something. And despite this, Jesus promises that we can have peace, contentment, and satisfaction in the midst of our fallen world. And when Jesus ministered to the crowds in John 6, they were worried about food, right? A very urgent need. They were hungry. And by feeding them with five loaves and and two fish, he was showing them uh, that he is the same Yahweh who fed them in the wilderness. He was in their midst. He was the I am in their midst. And they partially understood this. They, They rightly saw that Jesus was a prophet and a king, but they responded to him in the wrong way. They were fixated on Jesus meeting their their temporary needs, and he saw this. In verse 26, he says, truly I say to you that you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. They just wanted Jesus for physical bread. They're like, that bread was delicious. We would like some more. And even more so, they wanted Jesus to free them from Rome. That's what they were most concerned about. Can you get Rome off of our backs? And they failed to realize that this was not their deepest need. In the same way, we often fail to identify our deepest needs. Instead of putting our best energy and attention and prayers towards our deepest spiritual needs, we get caught up in work, food, politics, family, drama, and the the busyness of life. And we need to realize that life is not just about what's right in front of us. And we don't just need bread and fish. We don't just need Rome sacked. We need something more. And there's a deep, we have, have deeper eternal needs underneath all of these temporary needs. And we need the true bread behind the bread. And we need the person who can give us the bread. And this is what Jesus gets at in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the, or God the Father, has set his seal. Okay, while Jesus loved giving them a physical meal, he loves that kind of stuff. He loved healing Larry's hip, right? He loves doing that. He wanted them to get beyond the food, or, or beyond that to the food that, or that will never perish, And this food endures to eternal life, which only Jesus could give them. And Jesus was showing them that that their deepest need was not physical bread, but a bread that endures to eternal life. And the same applies to us. We need eternal life. And immediately when I say that, you're thinking about heaven. You're thinking about going, sitting on a cloud with Cupid and all the baby angels and, and enduring for eternity. And that's part of it. Actually, that's not what heaven's like, but going to heaven is part of it. But if that's all you think this is, by eternal life, you're missing it. Even more so, Jesus is referring to resurrection life that he promises in John chapter 11, which we'll look at on Easter Sunday. He's referring to having your deep spiritual longings met and into living life in relationship with him. Ever since the first human sinned in the Garden of Eden, our hearts have been fractured as we've been separated from the one that our soul longs for. And we always feel like we're missing something. And we've sought to fill this need with temporary things like relationships, sex, alcohol, food, achievement, fame, and comfort. 
All those influencers on social media, they're trying to fill an ache, a longing for significance. Maybe some of them are doing it for the right reasons, but I don't know. I'm kind of cynical about it. You might know that about me if you talk to me for any period of time. Right? We fail to realize that, or that what we need is not a form of ibuprofen that simply makes us feel better for a few moments, but we need holistic healing that will last for eternity. We need the, the good surgeon to do some work on our hearts, and we need to be made right with God and enjoy communion with him. We need to be, or to be restored and have our deep spiritual ache beneath all these other aches met. This is what Jesus means by eternal life. And they responded by asking them what they need to do to get the bread that leads to eternal life. Just tell us what we need to do. Eternal life sounds pretty good. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He says that in verse uh, 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Of God, and, and they thought they needed to do something. There was some type of work, some type of catch. What do we got to do? And they were still missing the point, which people just seem to do throughout the Gospels. In verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, so Jesus sets them straight. Unlike the religious systems they were brought up in, being Jews, he says there is no work that they could do to receive this bread. There's no amount of effort that they could exert or religious acts that they could perform to get this bread. They could not wash their hands enough or eat the right foods enough or do all the religious rituals enough to get this bread. Instead, what did they need to do? They needed to simply believe in Jesus. They needed to trust him with their lives. And maybe you relate with the crowds in the sense that, that for you, when it comes to you and God, you're always wondering, what do I need to do to be good with you? What do I need to do to get you to like me? And you may wonder, what do I need to do to measure up? And the good news is that you can't do anything. You cannot earn it. You can't work for it. You simply need to receive it. Here's the thing. We can't earn eternal life. We can only receive it. Eternal life it's not a paycheck to be earned through hard work. It's a bill that's already been paid on our behalf. And we simply need to receive it. And we receive it by trusting in Jesus and surrendering ourselves to him. Belief here, when he says belief, he's not saying that if you intellectually just believe that Jesus is God, that, hey, you're good, you have eternal life. He's saying, you need to give your life to me. You need to trust me. Throw your whole self into me. Surrender yourself to me. And as you do that, it's a beautiful exchange. We give Jesus our life through trust and belief, and he gives us his life. And the crowds in our passage respond to Jesus' call to believe not by dropping to their knees and praising God and thanking him, but instead they say, we need another sign. Right, the bread and the loaves, or the loaves and the fish, that was not enough. We need more proof before we're gonna go all in. Show us God. Show us that you're the real deal. And Jesus does not give in to this request. He refuses to give miracles on demand to prove himself. Instead, he goes back to talking about the food that leads to eternal life. He says this in verse 33. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, the kind of bread that he is offering gives life. 
It spiritually nourishes the world. It satisfies the ache in every human heart for satisfaction and significance and security. It eases our worries and grounds us in the love of God who is the I am, the God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They decide that they want the bread and they ask Jesus for it. And this is where we get to our key verse in verse 35. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. Okay, so Jesus makes the bold claim that he is the bread that gives eternal life. He's not physical bread falling from heaven that decays after a little while. He's not a bread that satisfies temporarily. He's a true bread or the true bread that the Passover points to. He's the solution to every ache in our heart and to our deepest need of eternal life and right relationship with God. He is the I am who I am. He is the Yahweh who appeared to Moses in that burning bush. He is the God who made Moses from a timid man with all his mistakes to a mighty warrior and leader. He's the one who frees us from deaths and hell and the grave just as he freed the Israelites from slavery, split that Red Sea wide open and gave them bread from heaven. This is a bold claim. The crowds don't know what to do with it. They're like, he's off his rocker. But man, he does some really cool stuff. So maybe we should kind of dig in a little bit. It says the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, whose father, they didn't say carpenter, but they're thinking it, whose father and mother we know? Like we saw like Jesus when he had diapers, some of them, the older ones. They're like, is this that Jesus? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? How could he be Yahweh? Jesus doesn't back down. I'll tell you one thing about Jesus Christ. He's not worried about offending you. He does not sit up at night, oh, I hope I don't offend Bill or Jimmy. I really hope I don't offend him. He's not worried about it. He, he never is. Why? Because eternity is on the line. He's got to tell the truth. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And your fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I or that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's making it weirder. He's like, you're, you're offended? Let's go a little bit more. See how offended I can get you today. At this point, the Jews are really confused. I think they, I mean, they are genuinely wondering, is he advocating for cannibalism? Is this the guy we're dealing with now? He's a little weird. Now he's weirder. They said this in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus yet again, does not try to downplay their concerns. He does not backtrack, not one bit. He doesn't even try to explain it. He says this in verse 53. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and make it better, drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood mm, is true drink. <laughs> He responds to their concern by saying, why, yes, I am advocating for cannibalism. No, I'm just playing. 
I just keep thinking of like that Slim Jim commercial from like 20 years ago, eat me, or whatever. Anyway, sorry. So I don't think most of you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so, so he's using physical terms to describe a spiritual reality, right? By eating his flesh, he's saying that they need to believe in him. And by drinking his blood, he's saying that they need to accept his sacrifice on the cross. And we remember this act of radical love every first Sunday of the month here at St. Church by taking communion together. We just did it last week. As we eat the bread, we remember his broken body. And as we drink the juice, we remember his shed blood. And what we're doing is we are intentionally remembering that, that there's no life outside of Jesus' blood and his body. He gives us life. Okay, so here Jesus is doing a few things. He is pointing to communion, right? He's pointing to uh, the importance of it, but, but I think even more so, he's pointing to the truth that if we want to have life, we have to be a people who, who metaphorically eat his flesh and drink his blood. What do I mean by that? If we want life, we have to fully embrace Jesus and all that he is. His life must become our life. But the Jews in this passage, they still did not get it. Right? When faced with this hard saying and their questions and their concerns, they did not press through, but at this point, they walk away. It says this in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus, great you know, church growth strategy right here. Say weird things, get people to leave. I think this is so often our response, though, to Jesus when he tells us something or challenges us in a way or, or he teaches something that we don't understand or we're confronted with something that we don't agree with or something we just don't want to do. I've seen it throughout my years of ministry. People are often compelled by Jesus. Their hearts are stirred by the cross and the resurrection. However, when they get to a hard teaching on money or sexuality or how they should spend their time, they say, I'm out. My earnest prayer is that you would not be that kind of person. No matter what he says, you would submit to it. And when there is something about Jesus or life with him that is hard for you, I pray that you would not bail and you would not run away. Instead, you would lean in, even with all your questions and your concerns. His ways are always better than our ways, but sometimes it takes a minute to understand that, and you have to hang with him through the confusion and through the concerns. Stick with him long enough to show you that. There were things early on in my journey that I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, uh, but as I get to know him more, I'm like, actually, I do agree with that. You're way smarter than I am, and I was just an idiot. So I was 20 years old. Not that 20-year-olds are idiots. I was just an idiot. Not talking about you 20-year-olds here. You're all smart. Anyways, <laughs> if you don't stick with them, you're always going to be left wanting something more. You're going to jump from thing to thing. Okay, if I can't get it here, I'm going to try to get it here. Try to get some ibuprofen. If ibuprofen don't work, I'll try Tylenol. I'm going to keep trying stuff. But here's the thing. Life is only found in Jesus. And Peter recognized this. Peter was an idiot. But man, he got this right. He says this in verse 67. He says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him. And this, this has to be all of our hearts. If you wanna be a follower of Jesus, this has to be your heart. He says, Lord, uh, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter's saying, it doesn't matter how weird you are 
or, or the crazy things you teach. You are God. You are Yahweh. So I don't get to bail. I don't get to choose, right? I, I don't get to decide what God is like. God gets to decide what he's like. And it's up to me if I want that life or not. Peter's saying, I'm in on the life thing. I'm in on you. I've seen you. You are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to go. Eternal life is found in you alone. He knew that it was, or that it was worth it to stick with Jesus in the midst of the hard things. It was the only place where his deepest longings could be met. Okay, with that in mind, let me ask you this morning. Have you fully embraced Jesus yet? In all that he is, have you fully embraced him? Are you just kind of nibbling on him? A little bit there. Are you eating of Jesus, fully embracing him? In the midst of your doubts, your questions, your concerns, have you let him be the Lord of your life? Have you eaten his flesh and drank his blood? Have you let him get into every area of your life? Have you fully embraced what he did for you on the cross? If not, you're gonna be like the crowds, frantically looking for bread and being fixated on all the wrong things. You're gonna spend your life on things that do not matter and go to your grave with a hole in your heart. And you'll be like Kate, or like baby Caleb, always feeling this need to fend for yourself, trying to take other people's cars and worry that life is going to pass you by. It doesn't, I promise you we're good parents, thank you. Anyways, <laughs> we give him plenty of stuff, but it doesn't have to be this way though. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be insecure like Moses was before he met Yahweh. You don't have to be looking at yourself all the time, all your shortcomings, all your failures. It doesn't have to be this way. If you fully embrace Jesus, you can have your deepest needs met. And you can have life with the creator of the galaxies. And, and, and this creator, he can give you peace satisfaction and contentment beyond your circumstances. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world. You can have this deep grounding in Yahweh. Things in life may not, actually, they will not go the way you plan them. And your heart may hurt for that adult child who doesn't have his life together. And you may be concerned about that, that diagnosis. Your finances may be tight, but in the midst of it all, you will know that you have a father in heaven who never forgets about you. He knows every single hair on your head. He doesn't miss a thing. He keeps your tears in a bottle. And you'll know Yahweh, who is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. And you'll have relationship with the one who broke his body and shed his blood for you. If you were the only person in the world, he still would have did it. He broke his body. He shed his blood for you. And in this space, you can have your hunger filled and your thirst quenched. Come to Jesus. Come to him. Come to Yahweh. Turn aside, look at that burning bush. Come to the table, eat his flesh and drink his blood. And once you do, you'll realize, just like Peter did, that there's no better place to be. Just like David said in Psalm 63, your love is better than life.
important to know that this is not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. And this is why Jesus commanded us to practice communion, because he knew we needed to regularly come to him and embrace him, and we need to turn from our ways and surrender to his ways over and over again. I have to do it every day. It never stops, right? You have to continue to trust him. It's also important to know that this is not a half-hearted thing. That's why Jesus was purposefully, I think purposefully, taking the crowds off. He's trying to weed them out. He's like, I'm not in the business of having half-hearted followers. He's never been interested in that. I think we deceive ourselves into thinking that he is, but he's not interested in that. He's not interested in half your heart. He wants the whole thing. For me, I've told this story many times, but I've always believed in Jesus. I've never doubted that, that he was the Messiah. I've never doubted that he's God. But for years, something was just missing in my heart. I would come to church services like this, and I would get really excited in a moment, but it would wear off after a few days. And I would always slip back into my old patterns of seeking spiritual ibuprofen to deal with my ache. And this included things for me, and your story's different, but for me, things like alcohol and pornography and success and achievement. And things did not change for me until I got to this place where I realized that I truly had nowhere else to go. There was no one else. There's nowhere else. There's no other options. If I want life, he's the way. I couldn't have Jesus and other things. But before I thought maybe I can have Jesus and other things. It doesn't work. I needed to be all in on Jesus. I need to, uh, to fully leave my old life, not keep it hanging around, like, oh, I kind of want to keep you here, but instead leave it wholeheartedly and embrace him. Just like Moses uh, surrendered to Yahweh at that burning bush. And just like Peter who dropped his nets when Jesus called him to follow him, I had to go all in. I had to truly eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I think that's the moment that the Lord wants you to have with him today. You know, maybe you've, accept, or maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today you need to do that. You need to come into right relationship with him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of you are just tired. You need rest. Today, Jesus is calling you to come to him. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Stop trying to be, the own, or stop trying to be your own God. Come to me, I'll give you rest. All you gotta do is believe in him. It's, it's not changed from John 6. It's not like now we have to do something. No, it's still the same thing. Believe in me. Turn from your ways. Trust in me. He died on the cross. And he rose from the grave so that you could have eternal life. Or maybe you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you already are his follower, so to speak. But you've struggled to fully embrace him. You've tried having Jesus and the things of this world. You've tried having two masters, Jesus and popularity, Jesus and success, Jesus and sex, Jesus and money. And these things are not all bad in and of themselves, but they can't be your Lord. They have to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus must power over them and they must all submit to them in the way that they express themselves in your life 
For that to happen, you need to fully surrender. You need to come to the table and eat. I just read this morning in Luke 14, Jesus has given a parable about a feast. He says he invites a ton of people to come to the feast and they, and they say, I got better things to do. For some of you, you've been saying that to Jesus. He's been inviting you to come to this delicious feast, eat at his table. You say, I got better things to do. I got other concerns I need to worry about. And this morning he is saying, come to my table, embrace me. I can't help but wonder too though, if there's another group of people here who, who you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and savior. You've actually let him be Lord. You don't have another master, but you're just tired and thirsty right now. You're struggling. It may look like on the outside that you have it all together, but you are struggling. You need an encounter with God and you need your own burning bush moment this morning. You need fresh fire. If that's you, I'm praying that the bread of life would nourish you in a fresh way today. Let's go ahead and stand all across this room. Our desire is to be a church that is all about Jesus. That's our, that's our passion, it's our desire. The only one we're worried about offending is him, right? We feast on him, we submit to him, we experience life with him. And this morning, I just wanna feast on Jesus a little bit. I wanna pray that he would reveal himself to you in a fresh way and he would give you just a vision of who he is and all his glory, all his power, and that he would fill your heart with wonder and love this morning. So I wanna give you a couple ways to respond. If you wanna bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm actually gonna have each of those groups respond that I, I pointed out there at the end of the message. So the first one is this, if you're a follower of Jesus already, so I'm gonna start with the last one I mentioned, but, but you need a fresh encounter with Jesus. So maybe you've been doing the right things. Maybe Jesus is your master. You don't have other masters, but, but today you're like, I just need a fresh encounter with Jesus. I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I'm discouraged. My heart is hurting right now. If that's you, can you be bold and just slip up your hand and say, Jesus, I need a fresh encounter. Oh, yes. Lord, I pray that you'd meet us right where we're at. God, for those who are hurting and dealing with pain and loss, for those who are tired spiritually, they feel like they're doing all the right things, but, but they're just missing you. God, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to them today. Jesus, reveal yourself to be the I am, the bread of life. Oh, God, come near to us. down. I, I want to do the, the second group. If, if you're here and if you're honest, and I know this is personal, but every head is bowed, every eye is closed, and I, I really want to give you a chance to surrender to the Lord today. And for you, you're, if you're honest, you have been trying to do Jesus and other things. Jesus and money. Jesus and sex. Jesus and relationships. Jesus and popularity. All that stuff. And today you just wanna say, Jesus, you are my only master. I wanna serve you alone. I'm done doing the half in, half out stuff. I, I don't wanna be like the disciples who walked away. I wanna be all in. If that's you, can you be bold right now and slip up your hand to heaven between you and God, just telling him, hey, I wanna fully embrace you. I'm not gonna do half-hearted anymore. Go ahead and slip him up all across this room. All right. All right, go ahead and, and pray with me. God, for those who are just honestly coming before you today and they're saying, I struggle to fully embrace you. God, I pray that, that 
there be a, a vision deposited into their heart this morning of how amazing you are. Just as David said, your love is better than life. That's what caused David to, to, uh, to worship you with everything he had is he saw you. He, he knew who you were. So right now, God, for those who have just been half in, I pray that you would reveal yourself in such a way where they can't help but give their whole hearts to you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, you can go ahead and put your hands down. And the last group here is if you came in, and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you once were and you've walked away, I wanna give you a chance to come to Jesus and experience his rest today. I wanna give you a chance to come into relationship with him and make him your Lord and your savior. Okay, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna count to three, and if that's you, can you just slip up your hand saying, Jesus, I wanna be in your family. I wanna be saved from my sins. So one, two, three, seven up all across this room. Is there anyone in this room who wants to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time or recommit themselves? All right, go ahead and put your hands down. I'm just gonna pray with you. And you pray in your heart. And church, pray with me as I pray. So Lord, for those who do wanna come into relationship with you for the first time or maybe recommit themselves today, I pray that you'd meet them right here just as you met Larry last year at the Holy Spirit Conference. I pray that you meet them right here that their lives would be changed forever. God, I pray, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. I pray that that would happen right now in Jesus' name. We thank you so much for your blood, Jesus. We thank you for your broken body. We thank you that, that you gave it all for us, and we thank you for the life that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. All right, the altars are open. The prayer team's gonna be up here in the corner if you want some one-on-one some -on -one prayer. I just wanna encourage you, let's, just be in his presence. Let's worship him here at the end and, and seek his face.